Hello, everyone. I am blessed once again to be here sharing with our brothers and sisters at LIAC a word that the Lord has put on my heart that I feel is going to be a blessing to all of it, to all of us. Um, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start reading at verse 1. And it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will, be, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that he had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out of the land of Canaan and arrived there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that we would understand and assimilate, Father, the lessons that you have for us today on obedience. I pray, Lord, that you would use me, Father, use my mind, my heart, and everything that you've given me, and touch the minds and hearts of all of those that are listening, Father, that our lives together would be changed to better serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Um, the title of today's message is A Deeper Obedience, Developing an Obedient Spirit, and we're going to look at two people in the Bible, um, we're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at Saul um, and see the comparisons of, of how they obeyed or disobeyed and the consequences of, of obedience and, and non-obedience or disobedience. Amen. Um, we're going to talk about their lives. Um, we find that Abraham left his, had his family and he had many blessings. He had a lot of things that he had acquired um, where he lived. Uh, and Abraham left, had a very comfortable life in Haran, the land where he lived and everything he ever had, everything he had he could have wanted, he obtained. He had friends, a big family, businesses that were prosperous, many assets, and a faithful wife. We could say he was a rich man living the American dream before the American dream existed. So then, what was Abraham's motive for wanting to leave that place that where he had so much comfortability and live as a foreigner somewhere else. I know a lot of people who migrate to the United States, and when you talk to them, they say, they give you different reasons. My parents are immigrants. They came to the USA in the 60s. And when people talk about migrating to the US, we find some of the reasons as to why they want to come to the United States. And one of them are that they say they want to come to the US so they can become rich, so they can build a house, so they can provide a great education for their children. But we very rarely hear people say, I want to go to the USA so that I can be more successful, so that I can be a greater asset to the kingdom. In other words, the motive for people coming here is prosperity for themselves, not usually prosperity, or for themselves to be able to enrich and help the things of the kingdom. I do actually know a person who came to the US and had that mindset. He said, my only purpose for being here is to reach others for the kingdom. And this person's name is Jesus Giraldo. He's one of the people that helped guide me and bring me to the Lord um, in my early days back in 1995. Um, 
when I first started coming to church, he led me incredibly. He had one purpose in life, and that was to lead people to God. You walked into his house, there was very little furniture. He says, I don't need furniture. I don't need, I don't need the things of the world because I just need to win people over for the Lord. Wherever God leads, we are to go. And we find that just like in the case of Abraham, God was asking him to go somewhere. And, and Abraham's desire was to obey God so that he can fulfill the calling that God had on his life. Obedience is described as, as to hear intelligently, often with implication of attention and obedience. Submissive to the restraint or command of authority. Willing to obey. Obedience to God means to hear, trust, submit, and surrender to God and His Word. Most Christians will find it easy to obey instructions or commands. However, when these instructions interfere with our finances, our peer acceptance, pride, or self-will, we find that we become less obedient, or should I say partially obedient, and in some cases just flat out disobedient, which is rebellion. Part of the misconception of today is that we obey some of God's instructions, then we will be okay. We used to, we're used to finding the gray areas in life, like only declaring some of our taxes so that we don't have to fully pay our taxes, like only tithing or giving some of our income and not our full tithe, not declaring for those of us that travel internationally what we're bringing into, uh, into the country through customs and hiding things, uh, only giving some of our income and not, uh, and not sharing the wealth of what God has given us. The fact is that when we are partially obedient, we are really fully disobedient. You can't, you either have COVID or you don't. You can't half have it. You have to be fully into it to be obedient. You have to fully surrender to God's will. You can't do a little bit and hold the rest back. Here's how Ebenezer Erskine, a Scottish minister, from the 1600 puts it. He said, so often we give God a partial obedience. We do not dare to disobey, but we do care to obey fully. What well, we do not care to obey fully. So we compromise. We do some of what we should, thus removing the stigma of disobedience. But we refrain from the most difficult or objectionable or uncomfortable part and thus try to get away with the best of both worlds. Abraham did not allow all of his possessions, his comfortability, to interfere with his ability to hear God, obey God, and follow God's instructions. You know it's easy to get attached to the things of life in such a way that it becomes difficult to obey God. The more expenses we have for luxury items and conveniences, the harder it is to obey God when he says give to missions or help your neighbor. Note that I said, obey, not hear. We do hear God. The problem is that we allow the love of earthly things to interfere with our full obedience and submission to God. But that was not Abraham's problem. He wanted all that God had promised him, and he knew that, he would that it would come to pass if he was obedient. God was very specific with Abraham and the promises he had for his obedience. We find in, in the book of Genesis chapters 12, chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, what those promises were. The first promise God gave Abraham for his obedience was that he would make it a great nation. As, you, as we know, this promise is still being fulfilled today through the great nation of Israel and Christians around the world. We could also say that all the nations are descendants of Abraham's eight children. 
Through one act of obedience, the entire world has been affected. The second promise that God gave Abraham is, I will bless you. As you read in Genesis, Abraham was greatly blessed. He never lacked anything. Yes, he encountered many trials, many trials along the way, but God was always faithful with his word and miracles. God never let Abraham down. The third promise that God gave Abraham was, I will make your name great. And for this very clear example of how his name was made great, we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 18 through 19. And it reads this way. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place later, received as an inheritance, obeyed, and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He just simply obeyed. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, Isaac and Jacob received the promise that was given to Abraham. Amen? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, when she was past childbearing age, was enabled to hear, to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, in other words, he was so old he should have been dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people, verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country not their own. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is what God has prepared for all of those who obey him. God has a greater place for us. We are so used to adapting to this world and conforming to the world to try to make our lives easier in this world that we disobey some of the instructions that God gives us. Verse 19 in Hebrew says, Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead, and in so matter of speaking, he did not even hold Isaac back. Abraham was so faithful that even when God said, surrender your son or sacrifice your son, that Abraham was willing to do that. What better recognition than to include Abraham's name in all parts of the Bible? Remember, God said that he would make his name great. His name is written in eternity as someone who was faithful and obedient, an incredible example of faithfulness and obedience. The fourth promise that God gave Abraham was, you will be a blessing. Every person and nation that would come into contact with Abraham would be blessed and partake of the blessings of Abraham. Abraham's life has been and still is a blessing to many people. There are many people that we know, and there are many people that you might interact with that you know that just being with them is a blessing. You don't know why, but you always have, when every time you're near this person, you feel like you're being blessed. And this is exactly what it was to be a blessing. It's that when, when Abraham is faithful, when you're faithful, when I'm faithful, we're going to be a blessing to other people just by being near them. People wanted to live near Abraham because living near him meant they were going to be blessed. So this is what, this is what the um, results are for people that are obedient to God's word, is that you're obedient. People are going to want to be near you because they're going to want to receive the blessings that you're going to have because they're going to overflow from you to them. The fifth promise is that I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
In other, in other words, Abraham was not only a blessing to his family, but to those around him, like I just explained. What I find in Abraham's life as an example, as an example, is that in order to grow in obedience, we must develop, develop greater faith. In order to grow in obedience, we must develop greater faith. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. It is impossible to have faith without obedience. It is impossible to have obedience without faith. We partially obey or fully disobey because we lack the faith to understand that God will fulfill all of his promises for us. We tend to do things and see things in the natural, and when God says do this or that, we object because it doesn't make sense to us. We are so used to microwave Christianity and an instant gratification that we have often found ways to theologically excuse our partial disobedience and call it obedience. So we've become, in some cases, people have studied and learned some things in the Bible, and after a few months of coming to church, they, well, they don't agree with certain things, and they've become smarter than the people who actually wrote the Bible inspired by God, and therefore they start justifying their disobedience. You might say, how is that? Well, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15 for an example of partial obedience and what the consequences were. If you would turn with me to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 1. 1 Samuel 15 says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the, I, I am the, one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now. To the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they, were, when they melee them when they came out of Egypt. When the, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, there was a group of people called the Amalekites who attacked the Israelites from the rear end, which means that they were attacking the older people than the children because they were slower. And they, they, they attacked the weaker links of the Israelites, and God didn't like this. And verse 3 says, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, it says. Put them to death, women and children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. In other words, destroy everything. This was the full instruction to Saul, to totally destroy. The Hebrew word used here for destroy is koram. Its definition is to exterminate inhabitants by destroying them. This was a very, very specific instruction. Exterminate all of the inhabitants by destroying them. And you might think, my goodness, what kind of God does that? Well, if you will see later on what kind of God does that because God knew who the Amalekites could have become and would have become. In verse, 1 Samuel um, 15, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he's totally destroyed with the sword. In other words, he kept one guy. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. In other words, he didn't fully follow the instructions. He kept some of the things from that battle. Amen? This is an example of complete disobedience by way of justification and actions. In ancient times of war, when people, people survived by going into battle and by keeping the spoils of the people that they had just destroyed or, or, or won. And they would appropriate the food, the land, the metals that they found, the weapons, 
And in some cases, they would even keep the healthy people and make them slaves. Or in like Daniel's case, if they were smart and they saw potential in them, they would make them community leaders, but they were still basically a type of a slave. However, Saul had different plans. He didn't fully trust and obey God. He took advantage of the normality of keeping the spoil to justify his disobedience. When he saw the fatness of the sheep and the cattle and the value that they had, when he noticed that capturing Agag would enhance his prestige and glory and leadership before the people, he took it upon himself to partially obey the instructions instead of fully obeying them. He even justified his actions by saying that he saved some of the animals or sacrifices to God. This is like some people playing the lottery and say, well, when I win, I'm going to give some money to the church. Well, let me give you something as a heads up. If you're not doing that now, you're not doing that later when you hit the lottery because it's just not going to happen. You need to be fully submissive and obedient now so that God can bless you moving forward. I'm not advocating for playing the lottery because I don't. I believe in trusting God for all of my resources and finances. What I'm saying is that that's a way of justifying obedience or disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, verse 15 says, Saul answered, the soldiers bought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. This is what Saul is telling Samuel. This is his reasoning for not destroying everything. But we totally destroyed the rest. It says, sounds like he was doing God a favor. So in his mind, he's thinking, well, we did some things here. We'll give some of this stuff to God. But the people will think I'm great. And it'll look like I obeyed. I didn't really obey, but it's probably good what I did because I feel good about it. Partial obedience or disobedience does not come without consequences. This is something we must understand. Disobedience does not start with an outward, with an outward act or something we say or do. It starts with an inward act. It's the condition of our heart. I'm speaking about disobedience because it can help us understand how God sees it. If we say we are surrendered, we've surrendered our heart to God and partially obey, then we are still, then there is still a part of our heart we have not surrendered. If we are partially submissive and obedient, we're not fully submissive. I mean, there's something or a part of our heart that we haven't surrendered to the Lord. This, there is still a part of us that is ruled by rebellion and darkness. After Saul's disobedience, Samuel the prophet speaks a timeless word to him. And we find what Samuel says on behalf of the Lord in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, verse 17. It says, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, did I not make you great? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But did I, but I did obey the Lord, Saul says. This is verse 29. But I did obey. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Agag. He's actually saying that he obeyed the voice by doing, not doing what God had told him to do by justifying his actions. Verse 21 says the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, now Saul is blaming others. Now he's pointing the finger. He says, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Isn't it incredible that Saul finds some weird way of justifying his actions? And it's not just Saul. 
We have a way of excusing our misactions or disobedience with God by doing the same thing. There's a tendency within us that if we like what we're doing and we do some of it that's right for God, the rest of it is going to be okay. And this is what Samuel replies to him. This is the response that Saul's get. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, some virgins have, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is what the Lord spoke to Saul when Saul was partially obedient, which he really was disobedient. We find that after this event, Paul is deposed of the kingdom, and the downward spiral of degradation begins in his life. Some scholars can trace what happened to, to Saul as it continues down the lineage of the Israelites and the Jewish people. To name one of them, some of them say that even um, the Amalekites, um, King Xerxes, if you remember in the book of Esther, there was a person who was trying to kill the, the, um, the, the Jewish people, and they're saying that he, they say that he was um, Haman, was a descendant of Agag. Now, some people say yes, some people say no. However, the principle is still here, that our disobedience today will have consequences or can have consequences generationally for our families. We, what we do or don't do in obedience to God's word can have the ripple effect down our lineage. Just like blessings, the way we can be righteous and right before God will have generational blessings for a family. Uh, to the extent that we're disobedient, to that extent, we transfer that disobedience down into our lineage. How can we develop obedient attitudes? And that's a great question. Philippians 2, 3, and 8 says it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what did Christ do? Christ set the example for us that even though he was God, he was still submissive to the Father. Even though he came to earth, he could have avoided the cross, he could have avoided the pain and the agony. He said in the garden, Father, not your will, but thine be done. And he willfully submitted to the, to the, to the call of God on his life, even though it hurt him. Even though he knew it would cost him his life because he trusted God. And that's the kind of obedience that we need to learn. We need to learn that when God tells us to do something, when God is admonishing us to go in a particular direction, when God says don't do this, that we need to understand and trust God in such a way that even if it costs us our lives, that we will submit to it. And yes, it's a difficult thing to say in the United States because we live in a country where it's easy to serve God. Because if we travel abroad and we even have missionaries in our own church that are in countries that are hostile to Christians, and man, it is difficult to trust God when your life is in danger. And we see the evidence of it in people that we know that go to foreign countries that are being prosecuted and persecuted and that surrender to God's will anyway, even if it would cost them their lives. We have many martyrs that have left an incredible testimony because they were faithful to God's calling on their life. 
There are particular attitudes that we can have that will help us have a more obedient spirit and be coming to a deeper obedience with the Lord. And the first attitude that we can have is that we can have a reverent attitude. We should have a reverent attitude. Reverence means to respect with love. Understand that God is working in our lives for our own good and interest. Amen? That's what God is doing. When God is asking you to do something, to go somewhere, to help out, whatever it is he's talking to you, because God speaks differently to all of us, God is asking you to trust him. God is asking you to bow before him and be reverent before him and respect what he's asking us to do. The second thing we are to do, and we follow the example of Christ, is to have a servant attitude. Understand that we are actually serving God. We are not serving ourselves. We're supposed to be serving God. God does not serve us. He is not a genie who we go to when we need something or want something. And that's part of the mentality is that we think that we can go to God and we, we don't get what we want from him. We're going to get it some way or another. By cheating, by stealing, by lying, by doing something else. If God is making us wait for the answer to something, it's for a reason. It's because it's developing character. It's developing um, fortitude. And it's developing with us what we need to trust him deeper. He's developing in us something that's ultimately going to help us, our families, our generations, and our neighbors out. Because remember, it's not just about me. It's not just what Ray wants. It's what Ray needs to be able to be more successful in reaching others for the kingdom. It's what will help me, what will enhance my calling. Not that I want this giant house to live by the water so I can rest. Because guess what? When I have the giant house to live by the water so I can rest, I probably won't be able to afford to, to make a tithe because I've got such high taxes. And this is what I'm talking about is that we prefer the things that satisfy us instead of following the things that the Lord is asking us because our attitude is wrong, because we have the wrong attitude for it. The third attitude that we should have is a grateful attitude. Being thankful for all that we have and for all that we don't have because sometimes God doesn't allow things to come our way because he knows they're not good for us. It's like a parent, a child says, Mom, I want to eat candy all night. And the parent says, no, because you're going to be up on that. You're going to drive us crazy. And the parent says, no, the kid thinks that they're being hurt. But the parents know they're actually doing the child good by not letting him do what he wants to do all the time. The lack of gratefulness can give people a sense of entitlement. This entitlement attitude causes us to question God and his motives. So when, God said, when we're not grateful towards God, when, we have, um, when we're ungrateful, what we do is we tend to question God and his motives when he doesn't give us what we want because we don't have a grateful attitude. Remember, grateful attitude is a key attribute to being able to go deeper in obedience with God. Number four is that we should have a quiet attitude. We must learn to be quiet, sit still, and just listen to God. So many times we're talking while he's trying to talk to us. We're arguing or debating and questioning everything we don't like. Having a quiet attitude can help us hear God and therefore understand more effectively what God is instructing us or asking us to do. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is what God wants from us. God wants us to be obedient. He doesn't just want us to be superficially obedient. He wants us to be fully obedient. And fully obedient, I say, because we have, we have named partial obedience as if it was full obedience, and it's not. We have to be fully obedient to God. And the blessings aren't just going to happen for us now. We might not even see the blessings. We might not even get to live them. If you read, as we read in the book of Hebrews, 
Those people didn't get to see. Abraham didn't get to see any of what God promised them. It was all later on. That is called complete trust in God. And I pray that the Lord gives us that kind of trust, that even though we can't understand it, even though we don't see it, even though we can't grasp it, we will still be obedient to God and his calling for our lives. And today, God might be speaking to you. God might be calling you to go into a deeper relationship with you. God might be asking you to help in some way, somewhere. I don't know what it is. For my life, I've got to analyze and inspect myself and ask the Lord, Lord, where am I supposed to surrender more that I am holding on to? What are the things in my life that have to change so that when you speak to me, I don't question it, I can have faith that you will bring it to pass, and that I can fully, willfully surrender and do it, and not partially do it and talk myself into thinking that I'm being fully obedient when I'm not. Because remember, a half lie is a lie. Amen? There's no truth in a half lie. If you're either in or you're out, and we need to bring ourselves to that next level of obedience, and that level of obedience will get us to a place where God can use us more effectively, where those around us can be blessed, and we, we will be a blessing not just to our families, but to those around us. Why don't you bow your heads with us tonight? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us on obedience, and we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that your word would stay in our hearts, and that today we can go forth and, and be totally obedient to you, just like Abraham was, that we can surrender the things that keep us from being fully obedient, and that we can trust you, Lord. Help us to develop greater faith and greater trust and greater obedience, Father. Take over all of our hearts and occupy it, Father, with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.